really been looking forward to uh, this this talk this morning. And uh, I just about uh, four years ago, I, I really, uh, out of really crisis in my life, and it's amazing how when we go through crisis, no matter what it is or how it affects us, we kind of reevaluate life, don't we? And we reevaluate who we are and what we're participating in. And 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 so I kind of came to that place about four years ago. I really began to reevaluate who I was and what I believed and this this thing that I've been a part of for about 30 years called the church. And, uh, and in doing so, I began to kind of reach into uh, my roots. And uh, I began to really kind of crave to get back to my roots and began to really reconnect with my family in ways that I hadn't before and been really truthful with them and, and honest and, and have deep, deep conversations that I that I hadn't uh, done before. I remember going back to Canada where I grew up and where I had come to Christ. And I remember searching out my, my former youth pastor that I'd got saved under and, and seeking him out. And I remember spending a day with him and just drinking coffee after coffee for hours at this little coffee shop in downtown Vancouver. And uh, he's a pastor there of a small vineyard church that reaches out to the inner city of Vancouver and the poor, the disenfranchised. And, and just... I just wanted to remember what it was like when I got saved and kind of grasp onto that again and, and reaffirm my, my faith on some level. And I began to kind of search out for the, really the roots of what I want to talk to you about uh, this morning for a few minutes, and that is the church. I began to kind of look at the church in a, in a broad sense in America and think, is this, is this what Jesus died for? Is this what Jesus wanted is this is this was this his dream and his hope and and not asking it in a necessarily a judgmental way or a skeptical way but just really wanting to know is this what the church should be because I was a part of it and and so I remember thinking I, you know there's I want something more in church I, I there, there's, there's, there's I want, I want to go back a bit to, to the roots of, of who the church is and what we should be and I remember walking in to this church over a year ago and just thinking, wow, this is different. I've never experienced kind of spirit-filled worship like this and, and experiencing the, the creeds and, and the, the, the depth of understanding and, and uh, to the, the, the communion and the Eucharist and the table. And, and uh, it just, it just I, I'd been searching for something like this. I just fell in love with it. So I didn't come here to be on staff or I didn't come here to, to really serve. I was doing other things when I started the Ten Sanctuary, but I fell in love with uh, our pastors and our community and, and the people here. And so in this search, I, I began to kind of go back in Scripture, and I began to say, oh, what, what, what is the church really supposed to be? Who are we? What are the origins? What, what did the architect of the church really have in mind when he came up with this incredible idea? And... Uh, I think over the years, I mean, going back even to the Old Testament, 
uh, redemptive groups have gathered and religious groups have gathered and, and uh, they, they've done what we do in, in this kind of setting. They, they sing songs and they pray and they, they uh, celebrate and they, they, they have community and they do all of those things. And, and I think any church that does that, they kind of evaluate that. I mean, I'm sure you do. When you go home, at, you know, after a, a service on a weekend from time to time, you may talk about, well, what did you think of church today? Well, how, how was the message? And what did you think about that? And, and so we, we evaluate. And I can tell you for sure that leaders evaluate and pastors evaluate. They're always evaluating church and talking about it and discussing it. And was this what God wanted? Is, 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 is this what God has in mind? And, and on some level, I think heaven evaluates what we do in the church. You know, when I grew up in church, I, I, uh, the, the church I remember most was in Lethbridge, Alberta, Canada. And it was MacKillop United Church. And just in case you don't know anything about that, I brought pictures. So this is, uh, this is my church, and my mom and dad are here. And you guys, of course, remember MacKillop United. We went to this church, and the pastor was Brian Jones. I'll never forget it. And it was a good church. My mom was the Sunday school superintendent. And my dad was one of the deacons. He, he counted the money. And I was the, the, the naughty kid who would steal the money. I mean, I would, remember one time I, I stole an offering and I felt so guilty. I brought it home and this little offering envelope and I opened it up and there was a nickel in there and I kept it. And uh, I just knew I was going to hell for that. And, um, and maybe still will. I don't know. But, but, uh, but that, that was my experience. And, I, and I, it was a good church and there were, there were friendly people and it, was, it wasn't a bad experience. But, but you know, kind of stepping back from that and looking back on that, uh, we've talked about it, and there really, you know, even though it was good, good minister, good people, there, there wasn't an expression of the new birth. There wasn't an expression of this transformational community that was meant to some way impact the world. I don't remember ever a, 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 an adult being baptized, and I don't remember anyone really kind of coming to faith. I don't remember a kind of an outpouring to the poor and the, the hurting of our of our community. And, and yet they, they were wonderful, wonderful people, and I'm sure good came from that church. But that's kind of what I grew up in. And, and I think... You know, God looks at our gatherings and he looks at our communities and he wants to bring something powerful and something amazing out of what we do and not just allow it to be a gathering. Um, you know, in Amos, uh, there was a people that were gathering and singing and having church and yet their hearts were were far from God and far from what they were doing. And finally, God speaks to them in Amos 5.21, and he says, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. He said, I cannot stand your assemblies. And then he goes on to say a few verses later, away with the noise of your songs. That's, that, no pastor wants to hear that from God. Those are not the words we want to hear. And yet on some level, God looked at what they were doing and said, listen, this isn't pleasing to me. And the reason it wasn't pleasing was because this group of people, even though they were gathering and they were singing and they were kind of going through all the right things, they were oppressing the poor. They were, uh, they were not taking care of those that could not take care of themselves. They were tolerating uh, spiritual hypocrisy. And God said, you know, it's not just about what you do when you gather. There's something beyond that. There's something that you do after your gatherings that I care about, that I'm watching, that is important to me. And so when I began to dig into this thing called the church, as Jesus talked about it, I really began to think about uh, who he was. 
you know, and uh, if you've ever kind of struggled with, well, who is God and what's God really like? I, I just go back to that, that one singular verse of scripture where Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Like if you can get a full picture of who I am and how I, I related to people and what the things that I said, then, you, then you're going to get a picture uh, that is very true of, of God. And so as I looked at Jesus, I thought, well, Jesus was uh, different from many, many religious figures in the world. When you think about really great religious figures in history, you think about, you know, these men that were holy and kind of bunkered up in some holy place, and, and he had to be very special to even get close to them, to hear their words, or to be in their presence. And, and yet Jesus was, was different. He was kind of this blue-collar guy who would get around everyday people. In fact, he didn't get along with the religious crowd. The religious crowd kind of got ticked off at him, and he wasn't exactly super thrilled with them either. And I love this passage in Matthew 9. We get a, just a, a really great glimpse of, of Jesus' mission and his heart and his values uh, here in Matthew 9.10. He says, when Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house. Now, this isn't any normal house. This is Matthew, the tax collector, one of his disciples. And nobody liked tax collectors. I'm going to say they hated tax collectors. Tax collectors were evil, evil men in that day, according to custom. It says that not just Matthew was there, but many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, they didn't have the courage to come to Jesus and ask him, but they, they kind of wanted the disciples, how come your, your man's hanging out with these, these people? And on hearing this, or overhearing it maybe, Jesus said, It is not the healthy that need a doctor, but the sick. And so he speaks his heart and he, he shares this value that he has of, I've come for the sick. I've come for the hurting. And, and what is so amazing when you kind of look back at, 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 at this dinner is in, in the Jewish social barrel, there were kind of levels and classes of people in that day that were very clear and very defined. At the very top of the social barrel were the, the rabbis and the priests, and they were respected, admired and looked up to. And, and then there were the Pharisees and Sadducees just below them. And then there were the, the law-abiding Jews right be, below them that kind of took care of the law and did the right thing. And then beneath the law-abiding Jews were the sinners. And then beneath the sinners, at the very bottom of the barrel were the tax collectors. And, and these were people, again, because they took money from their own people and gave it to Rome, and they took too much, usually. And so everyone despised them. They were traitors. And yet Jesus was with these people. Sinners would go to bed at night feeling good about themselves because at least I'm not a tax collector, you know. I may be messed up, but I'm not one of those guys. And yet Jesus was hanging out with these people. And I'm sure, you know, these people, as they gathered in that house, they knew that this guy had a reputation. He was a holy man. He was a righteous man. He spoke righteous things. But apparently, these sinners and these tax collectors felt comfortable with Jesus. They were okay with him being there. Now, they were probably hoping that he didn't hear about what they did at spring break at the, the Sea of Galilee. But they were comfortable with him on, on some level. 
And I just want you to know, if, if, if you come into this, this church this morning and church is not your thing and, and God is really not your thing and I don't know how you got here, maybe you don't know how you got here, but you're here and uh, you're not a religious person, didn't grow up a religious person, I just want you to know that if you hung out with Jesus like Matthew and this gang hung out with Jesus, if you spent time with him physically and you were around him in this day or in today, you would like him. You would, you would like him. And what's really amazing is he would like you. So here's Jesus. He's this kind of man reaching this kind of world. And one day, in the third year of his ministry, he decides it's time for he and the disciples to have a talk. He's going to tell them something about their future. He's going to begin to kind of lay out the game plan of this is where it's going to go. Now, they don't know he's going to die yet. I mean, he's, he's made reference to it, but they haven't really figured that out. But he is about to lay out the, the plan of what is going to happen. And he decides to do it in an extraordinary place. He was in Galilee at the time, and he decides to take his followers 26 walking miles to a place called Caesarea Philippi. And it's interesting, when he gets to Caesarea Philippi, it's the only time in all of the Gospels that we see him traveling there. There's no other time that we see him traveling there. He may have, but it wasn't recorded. And when he gets there to Caesarea Philippi, there's no, there, there's no healing documented. There's no raising of a dead person. There's no walking on the water. There's no teaching of the masses. All he does is have a talk. That's it. 26 miles walking with these disciples to have a talk, and then we see him go back. And it's, it's unusual. It's like, why did he go all this way to have this talk? You know, context, geography, location are very, very important in our lives. They say something about who we are uh, or what we're up to or what we're doing. And, and I, I guess one way to illustrate, if you're a man and you're married and you decide you're going to do a golf weekend with the buddies and you come home and you tell your wife, you show up in the kitchen and say, hey, baby, I'll tell you what, um, next weekend, me and my boys, uh, we're, we're going to be going on a golf trip to Muskogee. She would probably say, well, have fun. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good. Have fun in Muskogee. Sounds great. If you came home and said, Hey, hon, me and the boys, we are going on a golf trip to Vegas. She might not say, Hey, have a great time. She might ask, well, uh, when the, the game's over, what are you guys going to be doing? You know, what else is going on? Now, I haven't been to Vegas in a long time. My parents take, took me. Didn't you take, I mean, we went to Vegas when I was maybe 12 or 13 or 10. Or I, I remember we went. I don't remember how old. And I don't remember anything about it. But, but I've heard what happens in Vegas. You know, it's, it, it does have a reputation, right? And when you think about the context of where Jesus took his disciples, Caesarea Philippi was like a modern Vegas. In fact, according to scholars, most of them will say it was worse than Las Vegas. 
There's a uh, a record of this dramatic story and what Jesus had to say in Matthew 16. I want you to just kind of follow it on the screen and see what Jesus said. He said in verse number 13, it says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they replied, Well, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, said, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this is not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it, or the gates of hell will not prevail, another translation says. So this is the talk. This is what Jesus said after traveling 26 miles, got them out, and on on the the foothills of Caesarea Philippi, the outskirts of this city, he pronounces his vision of the church. He establishes three identities. He first of all establishes who he is, that he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He is divine. He's not just a good teacher, not just a good man, but he is God. And then secondly, he identifies who Peter is. He says, Peter, you're no longer Simon. Tossed to and fro, you are now Peter. Uh, you are a rock. You you are you are going to help to to lead this church, and and then and then he establishes the church. He said, "I'm going to build this incredible church, and the gates of hell, all of the powers of darkness, will not prevail against this." church. And so it's a revelation of identities. And when you think about the church, the word that he used there had never been used before. This is a brand new word. He, he, he said it and they probably, well, what? It, it was the Greek word for, uh, it was ekklesia. And ekklesia literally means a gathering of citizens called out of their homes into a public place. That's what it meant. He said, I am going to raise up this gathering of people called out from their homes into a public space or a public place. He said, this is the church. And then he went on to say, in the gates of hell, the, the, very, the very enemies, of, the very gates of hell will not prevail against this church or will not withstand the energies and the power of this church. But he did this in Caesarea Philippi. Now, Let's take a look at kind of the backdrop of what was happening here at Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi was a city built, again, uh, on the very shadows of this, this huge rock. So go to this one uh, first picture we have. This is the, the rock of Caesarea Philippi. And this rock was 100 feet high and 500 feet wide. It was actually called in that day the Rock of the Gods. And, it, and the reason they called it the Rock of the Gods is this rock actually had niches that were hewn out of the rock uh, where they would, would, would set up false idols and false gods. And so you can see some of these niches. Now, these, these are newer pictures. Obviously, these weren't taken when Jesus was alive. So... <clears throat> And there is a couple more niches. So this is the base of that rock. And then go to the next picture, and you'll see there's a cave. And there's some more niches. So there's this cave. And in the first century, uh, this this cave was actually 
a, a place where a, a, a huge stream flowed out. And the cave was called in that day uh, the gates of the underworld, or some refer to it as the gates of hell or the gates of Hades. That's what they called the cave. And they believed that Baal and demonic spirits came in and out of that cave, that it was literally an entrance and an exit to the underworld or to hell. And at the base of this rock, regularly, they would have large festivals. And these festivals were crazy. In fact, they'd make anything that happens in Vegas look like kindergarten stuff. They would come together and they'd worship the pan god, which was a, a, a kind of a, a, a weird perversion of sexuality. Uh, and they would congregate at this base and they would uh, participate in sexual rites and stuff that, in the presence of children who I heard earlier, uh, I wouldn't even want to mention. I mean, I just wouldn't even want to go into. But just, just unbelievable things would happen in these festivals, detestable things. In fact, this city was so detested by the Orthodox rabbis that they taught that no good Jew would ever go to Caesarea Philippi, that you wouldn't even show up there. And yet here was Jesus at this city. And he wasn't alone. He brought his youth group. <laughs> this would be like Cody gathering our teenagers and saying, we're going to Vegas. Well, how come? I just want to have a talk. Okay. Because these disciples, according to history were anywhere from 13 or 14 up to 20. There were a couple that were older. Peter was older. But for the most part, they were in their teens and, and some in their, their early 20s. They were young. So they're going to like Caesarea Philippi. And it was a 26-mile journey. And you knew they were talking about it like, why are we going here? What is Jesus thinking? And, and man, if my parents find out I'm on my way here, I will be so busted. This is going to be trouble. And they finally show up. And then he talks about this thing called the church. And when he says, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. Upon this rock... I'm going to build my church and the gates shall not prevail. There is a lot that can be said about that verse. In fact, theologians have debated that verse for centuries. What is the rock he's building on? What is that rock that he's building on? Upon this rock, I mean, they've taken the Greek and they've gone deep, deep into the, and, and, it, and it's not super clear. I mean, he's just talked to Peter about this revelation of Jesus being the Son of God, and, and he's changed Peter's name from, from uh, you know, uh, Simon to Peter, which Peter means rock. And then he says, upon this rock, and he goes into this other rock that he's going to build his church on. And so there's been all this debate and theology about what the rock means. And if you're from a Catholic tradition, you will know that uh, the Catholic tradition believes that the rock that Jesus was building on was Peter's leadership and, and the foundation of, uh, of Peter leading the church into this brave new world. And, and then if you're from Protestant tradition, most Protestants will tell you that, well, we believe the rock was the, the revelation of Jesus as the Son of God, that He's divine, and the church can't be built without believing that Jesus was divine. He was the Son of God. He must be believed in. And on some level, you know what? Truthfully, both of those are true. Uh, you can't have a church 
Uh, you can't, we really can't be the church unless we believe Jesus was the son of God, that he is divine, that he is God come in the flesh and he died. He rose from the dead. We must believe that. That is, that is who we are as a church. But Peter also was a great leader that laid a foundation that, that went from this wishy-washy man denying Jesus ever existed to being this leader who pronounced the vision of the church on the day of Pentecost and helped to lead the church into all that it would become. So, so yeah. But it's inescapable that when he said, upon this rock, I'm going to build my church, that there was a rock there. That there was this huge rock and they traveled 26 miles to have this talk and, and the talk was, there was a rock and they, they were, they, they had to notice that. And so much of scripture, if you've, if you've dived into scripture, and most of you have, you've seen that sometimes there's these multifaceted views of scripture and it's like a diamond and you can look at it from so many different ways and there's so many different ways that it will reflect into our lives and meaning and truth that can come even from one verse. And, and I believe, and there are many theologians that would agree with me that part, not everything, but part of what Jesus was saying was on this rock, in this kind of place, in this kind of culture, in this idol-worshiping, sin-soaked up, messed up, crazy going on, in this kind of world, in this kind of culture, I'm going to build something that's amazing. I'm going to build a community of people who are called out from their homes into a public space that care about this culture that care about these people, that love these kind of people, that want to be transformational in a culture like this. There's a great historian and theologian, and he, uh, he wrote these words. He said, his name is Ray Vanderlaan, he said, though Christian traditions debate the theological meaning of those words, speaking of Matthew 16 here, it seems clear that Jesus' words also had a symbolic meaning. His church would be built on the rock of Caesarea Philippi, a rock literally filled with the niches for pagan gods where ungodly values dominated. Gates were not were defensive structures in the ancient world. By saying that the gates of hell would not uh, overcome, Jesus suggested that these gates were going to be attacked. Standing as they were at a literal gate, uh, gate of Hades, the disciples may have been overwhelmed by Jesus' challenge. They had studied under their rabbi for several years, and now he was commissioning them with this huge task to attack evil, to build the church in the very places that were filled with moral corruption. Jesus was announcing on some level, he's saying, listen, the church is not this fortress. We're not kind of meant to be hiding and hold up and protecting. And, and, but but the, this church is to be active and moving and engaging and daring to go into the gates of hell. Now, when you think about the gates of hell, most of us think about eternity. We think about eternal hell. We think about, you know, we, we've heard so many probably growing up messages on hell and eternal damnation. And we were thinking, well, it's, you know, that we're just going to stop that. We're going to stop uh, hell. But gates in that day were entrances into cities. They weren't like garden gates we have today where you kind of go through your fence and you have this gate. Gates were large entrances, covered, shadowed 
areas and, and cities in that day, many of them were walled. Jerusalem was walled. And so if you entered into a city gate, you entered into this huge gated area and it was a congregating area. People would congregate in the gates and be, in, be kind of, uh, you know, covered from the sun. And, and, and so you would go through gates to get into a community and into a city. And so when Jesus said the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, will not stop or be a barrier to the church, literally, I think what Jesus was saying was we live in a world where the church is called to go into the gates of other communities that are kind of living in a hellish way or living in their own personal hell. I don't know about you, but if you've ever had a loved one that has been overcome with disease or cancer or pain, it becomes hell on earth. If you've ever had a loved one that has maybe taken their life or attempted to take their life or got so lost in life that they thought it'd be better to die than to live, then you know what hell is like on earth. If you've ever been through a difficult, tragic divorce that hurt and hurt you and hurt your kids, whether you were the reason or the cause or whatever, you know that we can experience hell on earth. There is a painful existence for all of us at different times of just being human. And we don't need to experience some eternal hell to understand what hell is right now. And I'm not saying there isn't. I'm just saying we can experience hell right now. There are people in our world right now that are experiencing pain and hurt and loss and hellish experiences. And the church is called to enter into that world. We're called to, to, to come together, to congregate, to worship, to be inspired, to be encouraged, to be loved and to love, and then to go into a world that is filled with the very gates of hell, to enter into that world and be who Jesus was in that world, to bring health to sick people, to bring hope to hopeless people, to bring love where there's hatred. That's who the church is. That was the vision that Jesus had for the church. He said, I want you to find the Caesarea Philippi parts of your world and start building. Start doing something to transform that community. When I was uh, in Dallas, I had uh, kind of, uh, I, I'm Canadian, I grew up playing hockey, and I'd kind of s- stopped playing hockey for a while, and, and uh, I got to Dallas, and Dallas is a hockey city, believe it or not. They, they got the stars, and there's tons of youth minor hockey, and there's rinks everywhere, which surprised me. And so I, I went down to one of the rinks, and I signed up to be on a team. I didn't know anyone in the, in the city. So I just signed up. I said, put me on a team. So I, I went to my first game and I walked in the door and I had no idea what I was entering, what I was walking into. I mean, there were about 15, 20 guys in there that were just untamed men. They were loud. They were cussing. I mean, words I hadn't heard in a long time. And then new words that have been invented, I guess, since <laughs> my days. And uh, so I was kind of just, and, 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 and not just that, but, you know, like, like just crazy stories, you know, 
sexual innuendo and stories about their wives and their girlfriends and crazy stuff. And I, you know, and, and then you know, it, it's not uncommon for guys that you know uh, hockey teams to have a beer after uh, the game. They break out beers and throw beer, but they were drinking before the game. Like this is, these guys were serious about having fun, and uh, and so I'm in there, and I got, and I'm a pastor. And I'm walking in, you know, and just, you know, and I'm, you know, it's a little bit awkward. It's just a tiny bit awkward. And I'm really not sure. And I didn't go there to witness. I was just wanting to play hockey. I wasn't wanting to be an evangelist or a crusader. I just wanted to play hockey. And so I just go, and they kind of don't even say hello to me. They're, they, you know, just kind of a head nod, and that's it. And I kind of get dressed and get my stuff on and go out and play and finish and, you know, shower up and go. And they really kind of didn't talk to me that much. They kind of, they, you know, ignored me a little bit. Uh, but it, I guess somehow, you know, they, they warmed up because the second game I went, they, uh, I walked in and they said, hey, how's it going? You know, with a couple words sprinkled in between. And then, you know, I said, oh, it's going good. How's your week? Ah, oh, blankety blank, great. You know, and we're blankety blank bad. Or, you know, and finally he said, hey, blankety blank, you know what? <laughs> what? What do you blankety blank do, anyways? <laughs> and, and so I didn't know. I wanted to say I'm a communicator. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I just finally, I said, I may as well just, I, I said, I'm a pastor. And, uh, and they said, holy, sure glad you came, really glad you came. And, and, and the language kind of, you know, it kind of changed a little bit in the room. Not totally. I mean, they still were giving it up a little bit, but, but it just kind of got adjusted a bit. And, and the stories weren't quite as bad. And, 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 and not because I, I was trying to condemn. I was just there. And, and so I, I really, again, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to win them to Jesus. I was just, I thought, I just want to play hockey. And uh, so I just, and I thought, you know, none of them are ready to hear the Jesus story. That's what I thought. I thought, there's just not a chance any of them want to hear this story. So I'm just going to hang with them. And I'm just going to kind of befriend them and try to find some common ground. And, and so gradually, over the next five or six games, that began to happen. We began to talk about home, and many of them were Canadians, and we talked about kind of our homeland and where we grew up. And there began to be a little bit of bonding, you know, and we found some commonality, and, and it was good. And then they, oh, I remember they started to call me, not Blaine, but Blainer. Blainer, hey, Blainer. And anytime they add something to your name, man, you're in. Like when they put an O on the end or whatever, it's just like you're, you're, you're in now. And so I was playing her and that was cool. And so I remember about the seventh game, uh, I was, we were out in warmups and the captain of the team who was the worst of the bunch came up to me during warmups. I was right by the boards. I was kind of stretching my legs and he came up and said, Hey, Blainer. He said, Hey, I've been, uh, been going out with this girl for about four or five years and we're living together. And, and he said, that's probably not good. eh?" And uh, I said, well, yeah, I, you know, tell me about it. He said, well, we're just, we've been talking and, you know, I, I didn't grow up in the church, but she kind of did. And, and so, you know, it, it, we feel like maybe we should get married. Do you think that'd be good? 
And I said, well, I, yeah, it could be good, you know, <laughs> if you guys love each other and you're committed to each other and you know what you're, 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 you're stepping into, yeah, that, that could be really good. And he said, well, we really, we've decided we want to do it and we would, we would like you to, to do that because you're, you're a pastor and would you marry us? Now, the church that I was kind of raised in, you know, uh, as, a, as a minister most of my life, you didn't marry sinners like that, that. That was not a part of the program. You could not marry sinners. You had to marry Christians because marriage wouldn't work with sinners. So you couldn't you couldn't pronounce any kind of blessing on that. So so my my first thought was, well, no, <laughs> of course I can't, you know. But I found myself saying, yes, I'd be happy to marry you. And uh, oh, really? Yeah, I'll be happy to marry. And and I, I just said the only thing is that we have this 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 three session counseling kind of program that, that we require our married new married couples to go through in preparation for marriage. And I was actually creating this counseling session in my mind as I told them this because we'd never married anyone yet. But I had it in my mind. I knew I knew what we wanted to do. And I said, would you be willing to go through three counseling sessions to prepare you for marriage? And oh, yeah, of course we would. I mean, this is an important thing. And yes. And so I said, oh, awesome. So we, we, he and his wife started to come to my office for several weeks, and we went through three weeks of counseling. And, and so I just told him about marriage from the Scripture in Ephesians 5, where it says that we're to love as Christ loved the church and we're to, you know, be loved as he loved the church. And it talked about how the relationship with Christ is so important in understanding a marriage and, and, of course, that led into conversations about Christ, and they began to ask questions. And so, really, uh, we, we talked about marriage, but each session we talked further and deeper about what it meant to be a Christ follower and what it meant uh, to, to, to allow Christ into our own lives and then into our relationship. And finally, we get to the third session, and the, the, the young lady, the, his, his fiance, said, you know, what do, what do we... Now, what do we have to do with this information? And I said, well, I would encourage you to invite Jesus into your, into your life, to, to call on him to, to be saved and to be born again and to invite him into your world. Well, what do I have to do to do that? What do I have to change? I said, you just invite him in. You don't have to change everything. He will bring the change into your life and your heart. Just allow him in. Let him love you. Let him be your Lord. And she said, well, I'm in. I'm in. And she said, she turned to her, her hockey playing husband and said, we need to do this. And you have to understand, this is this, is this guy. He's, he's a hockey player. He's Canadian. He just looked at her and said, well, hell yeah. <laughs> and I wasn't sure if God would honor his prayer after that or not. <laughs> but it didn't stop me from praying. And so I just grabbed their hands and I said, let's pray together. And we prayed together. And then she looked up and said, we should be baptized, shouldn't we? And I said, well, that would be good, except we don't have a baptismal in our church. We were meeting in a hotel. And I said, but do you want me to find one? She says, yes, we need to be baptized. And so we found a baptismal in another church and we went, we had a baptism ceremony and got them married. But, you know, I was thinking about that. I did not go to that dressing room to get anyone saved, to lead anyone to Christ, I went to play hockey. I just went to do what I like to do. 
And every single day we go into our world as these called out citizens, these called out believers from our homes into a public space. And we go into arenas and we go into restaurants and we go into places of work and we go into other people's homes and we go to golf courses and we go to quick trips and we go to places every day. And as we do, sometimes we walk into the very gates of hell, the very expressions of hurt and pain and darkness and loss and depression and hopelessness. And we are given opportunities again and again to love people. And sometimes it might not be speaking or preaching or challenging. It just may be loving long enough to gain an opportunity to share what God could do in their life and what God has done in your life. That's who the church is. That's what the church is all about. We gather here to worship, to be inspired, to be encouraged, and to love so that we can go and love others and share the health and the grace and the love of God with people that are hurt and sick and dying. And that's why we come to the table every week, is we remind ourselves at this table that without the blood and the broken body of Christ, we would be nothing. We would be hopeless. We would be lost. And so we invite you today to join us at this table, to allow God to come into your life through his broken body, through his shed blood. If you're here today and you're not a sanctuarian, this isn't your home church, but you're a believer, then you are welcome. This is an open table for all of us who believe in Christ this morning. So if you would stand to your feet, I'm going to invite our worship team and I'm going to invite our communion servers to come at this time. We're going to gather at this table in the last few moments of our service and we're going to ask God to come into our lives through his bread in this cup. So, Lord, we're so grateful that uh, you loved us when we didn't love you and died for us while we were still sinners, caught up in our own selfishness, our own ways. And even as followers today, we find ourselves there. And so we come back to this table again and again, reminding ourselves that without you, we are nothing. And as we gather uh, around this bread and this juice that was made with human hands, we uh, are reminded of the fact that as we uh, partake of this meal, that there's something mysteriously supernatural about it, that we are really engaging with the, the blood and the body of Christ. And this meal uh, causes us, Lord, to be one with you, to be forgiven, to be graced into your family, into this wonderful, wonderful thing called the church. But it also uh, makes us one with another. Uh, we celebrate the unity that we have in our faith together around your blood and your body. And so, Lord, we lift up the bread to you first, and we remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, that he took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body. 
So God, we invite you into the bread. Jesus, we thank you that as we receive this bread, as we break it in our teeth, we're reminded that you were broken for us on every level so that we could be whole. Lord, we lift up the juice. Thank you for your blood. Lord, you said that after you took the cup, you said this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood and that we should do this whenever we drink in remembrance of you. Thank you that we do have a new covenant, that it's a a better covenant, it's an everlasting covenant, that God, because of your blood, we're not just forgiven, but we're cleansed. That God, you're not just with us, you're in us by your spirit. Because of your blood, we are forgiven of every sin that Jesus, you took our sins for us. So we invite you into this cup. Thank you that it becomes for us the blood of Christ. Welcome, Lord Jesus. Let's declare the mystery of our faith together. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Go ahead, servers. If you would, move to your places and let's come together and partake of the table.